Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I've really enjoyed the day so far, and I'm hoping that my talk will connect with many of the presentations uh, that we've already heard. So um, before I start, I want to acknowledge um, the work of collaborators. Uh, in black, we have a group of uh, collaborators in Cambridge in England, uh, and in blue are some collaborators in Denmark, and I'll be telling you a little bit about Aarhus University and the State Serum Institute in Copenhagen, who are making a large study possible later on in the talk. But the starting point for my talk is uh, the question of why autism is more common in males. Various studies uh, estimate the ratio, the sex ratio of autism to be about four males to every one female in classic autism and in Asperger's syndrome, which still exists until next year. Um, <laughs> it's estimated to be about nine males for every one female. Now, these kinds of sex ratios could reflect all sorts of different factors. A possible factor would be social, uh, that it may be that in certain cultures it's e easier to recognize autism, uh, clinical factors, that our training as clinicians may make it easier to detect autism in males than in females, or the tools that we use may also uh, do that. Uh, genetic factors could also be playing a part, and we've heard a lot about genetics today, and some of those genes that have been implicated in autism may be sex-linked. Hormones, which is the focus of my talk, are also an interesting biological mechanism, and I'll be particularly focusing on sex steroid hormones, uh, like testosterone, also called androgens, but particularly what they're doing at the fetal stage of development, hopefully connecting with Eric Corchen's uh, earlier talk in trying to pinpoint the origins of conditions like autism to the prenatal stage of brain development. Uh, and uh, in red there, is a psychological approach, which is to ask whether autism may be an extreme of specific male-typical traits. So this gets us into the uh, dangerous territory of what in England we call sex differences. In uh, the US you call gender differences. We tend to use the word sex to describe uh, differences at the chromosomal level. Uh, but are there sex differences in the brain and behavior? Well, I thought I'd start with the neuroanatomy because we're on slightly firmer ground because this is just simply showing uh, total brain volume uh, and what you see is that uh, males in blue have greater brain volume than females in red. Uh, but size may not be important because what we also see is that females reach their peak in development uh, earlier than males. So rate of development, uh, again, particularly connecting with Eric Corchen's presentation about early brain overgrowth in autism, may be sex-linked. You can also find sex differences in uh, brain regions, not just looking at total brain volume. So here I'm just showing you two regions that are sexually dimorphic, one is the amygdala, which is larger in males than females in childhood. Um, we're just talking about typical individual differences and how it uh, changes with sex. And here's another brain region, 
the planum temporale, which is a language area, larger in females than males. So uh, it depends on when in development you look at the size of different regions, but at specific regions that are known to have specific functions, the amygdala involved in social processing very strongly, planum temporale in language function, you see sex differences. Now we're getting into the more uh, dangerous areas in one sense because sex differences in behaviour have been a very contested uh, area of research. Uh, But if we just look at child play, what do boys and girls choose to play with in the first five years of life? Hundreds of studies show that if you put toys out on the carpet and you film the children more boys than girls will choose to play with constructional toys uh, like Lego and toy vehicles and more girls than boys will choose to play with dolls but not just um, uh, touching them they're actually creating social stories with them so imagining the mental states, the emotions, the thoughts the feelings of these little figures in plastic. At risk of stating the obvious, it's not that all boys do one thing and all girls do another. Uh, This is some data from Melissa Hines' work showing that all we're seeing is differences in terms of how much time uh, boys and girls tend to spend playing with the male typical toys like the car or the female typical toys like the doll. And picking up on Karen Pierce's talk earlier today, Uh, showing that children at the earliest point uh, in the diagnosis of autism seem to show more of an interest in patterns than in faces, we might be seeing something which uh, looks like an extreme of a male-typical profile in autism. Now we're jumping into even more dangerous territory to look at sex differences in the adult population. So we looked at child play. What about the things that adults play with. Well, we can look at occupational choice, and what we find is that there are a whole cluster of occupations which are more likely to be filled by males than females. Um, These include mathematics, computer science, physics, engineering, and tool-making. And here I want to connect with Bernard's talk, the last presentation, in trying to consider the question about whether autism and sex-linked differences may have uh, both positive and negative uh, selection pressures. Uh, There's a second set of of occupations that we see in the adult world which show the opposite profile. More women than men tend to fill these jobs, primary school teaching, counselling being two good examples. If we look at the child data side by side with the adult data, it's tempting to to say that what we're seeing is that males on average are showing more of an interest uh, in systems, uh, what what Bernard was was calling technical interests, uh, and females are showing more interest in people, in faces, and in the emotional lives of others, bottom of this slide shows you some data from the SAT math test uh, and this paper was published just this year in PLOS One. It's showing variation across the years on the math uh, subtest of the SAT and what you see is males um, outperforming females on this test despite 
presumably changes in education and in other factors. So interests may also have a knock-on effect uh, for performance. Now let's look at uh, this idea that maybe autism is an extreme of the male typical profile. Well, here we've got an an empathy test where where you have to read someone else's mind from fragments of photographs of the face, particularly the eye region of the face. Women tend to score better than men on this test where you have to uh, pick which word best describes what the woman in the photo is thinking or feeling. Here she's meant to be concerned. But when you run that test in fMRI, uh, you find this pattern of results, so not just behaviorally, but also in terms of neuronal activity, uh, that, that women show more activity than men, on average, in the left inferior frontal gyrus, and people with autism show even less activity in that same region uh, when looking at people's faces to decode someone else's state of mind. You can also see that same pattern, and it's one I want to draw your attention to, uh, when you take a non-social task. So here we've got a test of finding the target shape as quickly as you can in the overall design. It's called the embedded figures test. Uh, males tend to be faster than females in the general population. So picking up on Dan's point that maybe we should be trying to understand autism in terms of variation in the typical population, people with autism tend to be super quick at finding the target shape hidden in the overall design. So Bernard's point about the genes for autism may predispose to assets or talents, not just to deficits and disability. Uh, But when you run that same test in fMRI, you see that same pattern of results in the posterior parietal cortex, namely that females in the general population show more activity than males in this part of the visual cortex, and people with autism who coincidentally are doing the task better um, are showing even less activity in that same brain region. So that pattern is one that uh, we've been interested to explore, uh, whether autism might be an extreme of typical sex differences. But so far, everything that I've shown you could just be the result of postnatal experience and culture. So how do you test whether this might have anything to do with biology? Well, one way is to look at newborn babies who haven't yet been exposed to human culture. These are babies who were 24 hours old, uh, and they were presented with a human face or a mechanical mobile and simply filmed to see how long they looked at each kind of object. Do they show a preference for a social stimulus or a mechanical stimulus? And cutting to the results you can see that more boys than girls, 43% versus 17%, showed a preference for looking at the mobile, just like Karen's findings that kids with autism um, might even be detected for early diagnosis by their preference for looking at patterns rather than faces. More girls than boys were showing a preference for looking at a human face over a mechanical mobile. Given that these findings are present on day one of life, it means that whatever the role of postnatal experience, we do need to look at prenatal biology. The other way to uh, remove the role of human culture is to look at another species. So this is a study by Melissa Hines, uh, where she gave those same toys, like toy cars and toy dolls, in this case to vervet monkeys, to see if males and females of that species 
show a preference, finding, just as we saw in the human child studies, that more males show a preference to play with the toy cars <laughs> and more females to sh- show a preference to explore and interact with the doll-like figure. So let me jump now to a possible biological mechanism. We've been interested to study fetal sex steroid hormones like testosterone. Uh, They're also called androgens. Uh, We're interested in them because, first of all, males in the general population produce much more of these hormones than females, at least twice as much. Uh, And secondly, we know from animal research that these hormones have organizational effects on brain development. Organizational is another word for permanent in the sense that if you deprive a rat uh, of testosterone, it changes its brain development and brain structure and function. If you uh, increase testosterone in utero uh, in a rat, you again see changes in brain uh, uh, structure, function and behavior. So these are permanent or long-lasting effects of testosterone that you can measure in the amniotic fluid that surrounds the baby. How to test this in humans in an ethical way? Well, the only way to do this safely is to ask women during pregnancy who are having amniocentesis for their consent when the needle goes into that fluid for clinical reasons to also analyze it for hormones, for testosterone produced by the baby. That's the time in development when uh, we're most interested because postnatally hormones may be doing something completely different, but prenatally we know the hormones from animal work are changing brain development. So that's what we do. We measure the hormones in the amniotic fluid that surrounds the baby uh, at the end of the first trimester and going into the second trimester of pregnancy, which coincides with a surge of production in testosterone in the fetus. The fetus is producing a lot of testosterone, at least in males, at that time, and it coincides with when women, some women in pregnancy choose to have this procedure. So it gives us an opportunity as scientists to wait till the baby's born and look to see if testosterone levels in the womb have any relationship with child development uh, postnatally. What we find is that fetal testosterone levels that you measure in that fluid are related to individual differences in typical development. So here we're now not looking at autism, we're looking at variation in any group of children, that some children make more eye contact, some children start to talk earlier, some children are more sociable, and some are less. And what we find is that testosterone, fetal testosterone, is inversely correlated with these behaviours in early childhood. The amount of eye contact they make, their social skills, how rapidly they're developing language, and their empathy. Inversely correlated means the higher the the level of fetal testosterone, the slower they are to develop these behaviours. But fetal testosterone turns out to be positively correlated in childhood with this cluster of behaviours. Autistic traits, so how many autistic traits you have as measured on different scales, how narrow your interests are, your attention to detail on that embedded figures test and how interested you are in systems or your technical interests. Positive correlation, of course, means that the higher your testosterone levels prenatally, the stronger, you, the, the, the more you show these patterns. So if I just show you some of that data, this is 
um, data where we're, we're measuring the children's ability to read emotional expressions uh, in a forced choice, so picking one of these four words to best describe what the child is thinking or feeling. Uh, sorry, the person in the photo is thinking or feeling. Here he's meant to be interested in something. And what we see is that as your testosterone level in the womb is higher, you have more difficulty on this test of empathy at age eight. So hormones prenatally are predicting performance in empathy eight years later. Bear in mind that all of these dots in the graph are typically developing children. So this is helping us to understand or get a handle on variation in any population. Here's a second example from that same study. Um, This time we're looking at autistic traits. And whereas previously the line went down, showing a negative or an inverse correlation, now we're seeing the line go up, that when a, a, a parent, the mother, is asked, how many of these autistic traits does your child have, either measured on the autism spectrum quotient, a questionnaire, or even in toddlerhood, on the checklist for autism in toddlers, a quantitative version, we see that the higher the testosterone level, the more autistic traits a child is showing. Once again, to underline the point that all of these dots in the graph represent one child who is typically developing. So autistic traits in the population is a dimension, Uh, Just as we talk about the autism spectrum, we can also think of autistic traits blending right through the population. And we're beginning to see how the number of autistic traits correlates with this sex steroid or androgen uh, hormone, testosterone. Now, the problem with our work so far, just to wrap up in the last two slides, is that um, we've been uh, measuring testosterone in typically developing children. Here there were about 235 kids, that's way too small a sample to be able to say whether elevated levels of fetal testosterone are associated with having a diagnosis of autism. As we've heard, autism is about 1% of the population. So there might be one or two kids with autism with a clinical diagnosis in that, uh, that sample. So that's why we're working with our Danish colleagues. Um, in Denmark, they have uh, a collection of amniotic samples from women who've had amniocentesis during pregnancy going back to the 1980s, stored in their freezers. They have about 100,000 samples, and that gives us plenty of opportunity to see which kids have gone on to develop autism. And, of course, we have as many non-autistic or typical kids to choose as controls. On that basis, we've been able to identify 59 kids with autism, and we've uh, selected uh, about four times the number of controls. We're not just looking at testosterone. We're looking at all of the steps in the sex steroid uh, pathway. So testosterone is just one of these androgens, but it's synthesized from a number of precursors, all of which are known to have masculinizing effects on brain development. They're called the Delta IV sex steroid pathway, and they're mediated by a specific gene. So when we're looking at hormones, we should always remember that the amount of hormone we produce and uh, how, it, how it functions in terms of the receptors for that hormone uh, themselves are influenced by genes. But hormones are also interesting because they are epigenetic. That's to say, these particular hormones can turn genes on and off. So when we are thinking about 
genes that may be very common, we should also be thinking about genes that uh, might be regulating other genes. And I saw that one of the genes that Dan showed was the uh, GABA-B3 gene, uh, which seems to be unrelated to hormones. It's a receptor for a neurotransmitter, but it's modulated by this uh, sex steroid hormone, testosterone. Here are my conclusions that fetal androgens, so the sex steroid hormones produced by the fetus, play a role in sexual dimorphism of behavior and in brain development, uh, and that these hormones are interesting not just because they shape brain development, but because they interact with genetic factors. So rather than thinking of autism as purely genetic, or rather than thinking of sex differences as purely genetic, we can be thinking of them as a, the outcome of many factors inter interacting, but including hormonal factors. And the Denmark study that I described uh, is close to the end of, um, of being completed, uh, and I think will be the strong test of the fetal androgen theory of autism. Thank you very much.